Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get this episode underway, I'd like to warn you that we will be talking about subjects that can be triggering for some people, namely baby loss, suicide, and child abuse. Subjects that are difficult to talk about, but still need to be discussed. And we thank our guest very much for talking so openly. Welcome to the Dad Vengers podcast, sponsored by Tonka, because being tough is all about getting out and playing. I'm Nigel Clark, TV presenter and performer, and I'm also host of this wonderful podcast where we explore different aspects of parenting and hone in on the dad point of view. And mums, grandparents, carers, we want you involved in the conversation too. So let's talk, let's laugh, let's share the things we find difficult and become the type of dads we really want to be. Welcome to another episode of the Dad Vengers podcast. Now today we've got a special episode because we've got a guest who's been through quite a lot in his life. He has had struggles with mental health. He's lost two children. He's attempted to commit suicide on numerous occasions, but he's agreed to come and talk to us here because he knows how important it can be for other people to hear a story like his. Please welcome Gary Anderson. Thanks very much, Nigel, for asking me to chat to you, mate. Gary, we're so, so happy to have you here because your your story, which is one we're going to talk about, and I've got my tissues by the side just in case, um, is is a harrowing one, but it's one that people need to hear, I think. Okay. I, when I listen to you, I, I don't, and I think I spoke to you the last time about it, whereas I, I've worked with so many people who have more harrowing stories than I've ever had, if that makes sense. I think when you've went through things like I have, I, I don't see it as harrowing. I just see it. It's been my life. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so let's get down to it. I want to start way back. Let's go back to when you were a young boy growing up. Yeah. Uh, what was family life like for you? Uh, fam- family life was like me when I, if I look back, I didn't understand it then. But what I know now is... Mum and dad got together because she was pregnant. She got married because back then you, that's what you did. Uh, she married a man who didn't love her. That makes sense. So it was doomed. It was doomed to not last really. So yeah. there was there was no love in that family. There was there was just nothing shown to, towards love to my brother or anything. There was just nothing like that, which to me is the most important part of any family unit it's that love for each other yeah and, and it was <clears throat> excuse me it was a kind of common thing 
back in that earlier generation for people to marry just because maybe someone was pregnant rather than than for love, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I could probably go further back and say that about me granny and granda. When I look at their dynamics, there was no love there. And that was probably normalised. That's probably, that was that generation, as people would say. It doesn't mean to say it was right. It's yeah. just that's what that generation was. And so what were your parents like? What were they like when bringing you up? Uh, strict. Strict. Very strict, yeah. Uh, no love. My family, my mother would probably care more for animals than she would for myself and my brother. Uh, that's not a sob story in a sense. It's just that was the norm for us. Mm. For me, I can't speak for my brother, but for me, it was basically, I didn't matter. I don't exist. That's how I felt in my life. I don't exist. So your mum was quite selfish in a way, um, more thinking about herself than, than you and your brother. Yeah, and, and, and again, because I know her history, I know why she was like that. She wouldn't see it herself as a mum, but I understand why she was the way she is now. So I don't hold any malice towards my mother or anything like that. What I used to, definitely used to, I don't know. And so with mum being selfish, what was dad like? Was he more, more of a caring role? No, definitely not. No, he was... I never, ever saw my dad smile. Ever. I never, I, I can't even remember spending time with my dad ever. My dad worked a lot. He, he, he provided, he was a, a worker, a grafter, you know, he, he, he set his own business up when he was a young man. And, you know, we moved out to council estate, had a, a, a bought house way back. We had two cars, which was unheard of really back then. So he's a grafter, but he didn't have any, I would say, emotional intelligence or any empathy or understand on how to bring children up. I don't think he wanted to, to be honest. I just think he fell into that because my mum got pregnant. Wow. Um, as you know, here at Dad Vengers, that's, that's something we're trying to combat now. Yeah. And having, having heard that your story begins there, it's really important to frame it for people who might be listening that... Um, this story that we're about to hear is is one of the best way to put it one of the routes that a life can take oh massively it's it's just scripts in life isn't it you know and if you look at the first 36 months of a child it's already developing then by the time you're seven year old it's developed so then by the time you become an adult you're just living that script not knowing it's a script it's just how it how it is yeah. And, we've all, and we've all got scripts, as you know, positive and negative. Yeah, we definitely do. We definitely have scripts. Um, so getting back to your dad, who showed no love, never saw him smile. Um, was he abusive as well? Physical, emotionally, not, not sexually, but physically, emotionally, def definitely. He wouldn't see that because it was normal for him. Right. So you got smacked. Yeah, he belted, yeah. I can still remember the belt with the lion's head. So that, wow. that, that would touch my skin quite a few times growing up. But again, if you look across the board, it was normalised. You know, I got the cane a lot at school. I got the strap a lot at school because I always misbehaved. So it was almost, that was normalised back then as a child. What did it do to your mental state? Did you, 
did you know that that wasn't right? Because you're, you're seeing it from so many different sides. You're seeing it from school side. You're seeing it from your dad. Uh, your mum's not um, really taking a massive interest in you. Where did you go in your head? I, dis- I totally disliked myself from the day I could even think about myself. I hated myself. I hated the way I looked. I had long eyelashes, high cheekbones, blonde hair. In a sense, my mum and dad wanted a girl. And, I, and it was almost like I had some of them features. I looked quite like a, a, a pretty boy. That's hard to believe now, got bald head and covered, <laughs> and, and covered in tattoos. But that's, uh, that's how I was. I was a very quiet child, very shy, although I got into lots of trouble. But my natural being has become quite quiet. Whereas my brother was quite a popular kid, uh, good at sports and football and cricket. But I, I wasn't that kind of person, really. Uh, very shy child in some ways. So you're a shy child. And do you think the shyness came from from what you were going through and from the fact that you were hating yourself? Uh, I just felt I never fitted in. And that's the, that was the big thing in me. I never fitted in at, at home, primary school, anything. I just never felt I was good enough at, at, on any any level at all, ever. And even I remember getting, I really tried hard once at school and I can remember coming home saying I got 98% in English. It still sticks in my head today. And my mum turned around and said, why didn't you get 100? So to me, as a child, you don't know it, I know it as an adult, but you wouldn't know it as a child. It's like, what's, what's the point? What's the point? And that almost as a driver, you've got to be perfect to be recognised. I'll have to get 100%. I have to get a hundred percent. That's the only way I'm going to be recognised. That the fact that you have have that memory of that time, yeah. When you, I mean, ninety eight percent. Yeah, man. Dude, I'm, I'm going to give you look, look. Well done for the ninety eight percent right now. I'm going to give you that right now. Yeah. Because that's not the reaction that you should have got. Yeah. In any way, shape, or form, but. Uh, there's a pattern building up here and we're building that pattern up. You, you didn't get the right reactions growing up. No, I got a lot of negative because I, I was mischievous and I was into devilment. I, whatever my dad punished me, if I got the, the belt or anything like that, it never stopped me being rebellious. And I probably still have that streak in me now. I've, I've, it's like the rebel child inside. And, it, and for me, it was almost sticking my fingers up at my dad a lot of the times. Even though I got punished, I still continued to be naughty. I still continued to get into trouble. And, that, and I carried on that all the way through adulthood, really, as well. Not uh, teenage years, a young adult. Mm. Um, now, you weren't just getting uh, negative things at, at home. At school as well, you were bullied a bit. I know you said that um, you you had feminine features, let's say. Yeah, definitely, definitely my eyes and my... I mean, I, I became the part where... And, and I've still done this not too, too many years ago. When my eyelashes come out, I start, I used to pull them all out. And I'd done, done that as a kid. So I'd sit there and pull my eyelashes out. Because... I knew they stuck out too far. And, and wait, hold on. To be a child who, who knows, who thinks, not knows, thinks that their eyelashes stick out too far, um, are, are kids teasing you about it at school? 
I can't really remember. Somebody said some. Somebody's said something, and because of my dyslexia and probably I'm kind of on the spectrum of autism, I took things literal. If that makes sense. Yeah. So so although you wouldn't have known about autism and uh, dyslexia as a kid, I'm classed as a thick kid, and yet I still got ninety eight percent in English from working really really hard. Yeah. But no. But going back to the eyelashes, yeah, as a form of self harm, and I used to pick the hairs out me and. I used to punch myself in the stomach to hurt myself and things. I didn't realise that's self-harming. That's just what I did. You learn these all later on in life and things. I didn't realise it was. I just hated myself. I'd sit and punch my head, hit my head off walls. And this all stemmed back again to the fact that you hated yourself because that's what you'd kind of learnt at home. Yeah, well, I wasn't. I believed. I wasn't, expect, I wasn't accepted in my household. I wasn't that perfect child, and I think probably somewhere online I wasn't that girl. If that makes sense, I became a boy. You know, my brother was born first, and I came next. And I and I think my dad definitely wanted a girl, so I came out. Yeah, I've already failed, haven't I? There's something else we can't miss out. You had another experience uh, in your childhood at around the age of nine when you were self harming and stuff that we should talk about as well. You were assaulted, weren't you? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's a few things happened around that, that, that time. Uh, there was one where uh, some lads came to my house and uh, kind of smashed the house up a little bit when my mum and dad was out at work. There was a hundred pound stolen, which was a lot of money back then uh, in the seventies. Uh, and the, the damage and one of my, my mother's medallion got stolen. So obviously my dad came back and I would never snitch or grass. I, I call it grassing, but it's, I think down where I come from here, and I was the class of snitching. So I had to take the punishment for them. And I remember my dad and, and he was, the hiding he gave me was unbelievable. And I remember my mum coming back and she found out her medallion had been stolen. So I got another hiding. So I realised back then, I work, I woke up, I decided I'm running away from home. I had to get away from these people. I'd had enough. And that was at nine. And I remember it was the middle of winter, getting up. And it was, I'd say, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. And I remember stealing some money. So I actually did steal then, stole some money, took some cake out the cupboard. And I remember an auntie or something brought some Blackpool rock. I took that with me and, and started walking. Uh, Sadly, we, we had an Alsatian at that time, and this sounds awful, but if I'm going to do this, I have to say how, how it was. My mum loved dogs. When I used to watch my mum, she nurtured them dogs. She, she'd get damaged dogs and nurture them to better. And I remember the dog looking at me, and I'd give it such a kick to the head. And I know that sounds awful, but that's the damage. I, I didn't realise that that's, that's how I was then, and I just kept walking. And I, I, I walked across rivers. I remember going across a river on the ice on my belly, trying to get across the river and different things. And, well, and this was basically you leaving home, age yeah. nine. nine. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I actually walked 14 miles. I went to my nana's, which I love my nana dearly and my granda. They, they, you don't realise it till the dad, they're dead, sadly. Uh, but I loved them dearly, although I didn't know what the word love was. But I, I, I did. So my idea was going there, get me cousin who was a year younger, <laughs> then go and live on a farm <laughs> in a haystack with all these bad ideas in my head. Uh, but sadly, the police police got me then. I'm saying sadly, it was sadly then. 
glad no. <laughs> so you said there are a few things that happened around this time. One, you tried to leave home, got found 14 miles um, away by the police and got taken home again. Uh, mm. That's not the only uh, thing that happened, was it? There was another assault, uh, a sexual assault. Yeah, well, it, was a t it happened a couple of times. I, as a kid, to try and escape everybody, I would go and sit down at a beach where I live. It's just a little beach. But, and there's a place called, there's like a docks there where you used to get the big boats coming in. And I would go down and run, mess we, we call it messages, but like get uh, food and different things for the people on the boat. And they'll give you some money for going there and getting sweets and different things. So this time I'd went and came back and went down to the beach. And there was a boat. I'd, I'd say it, 10 guys there, maybe, maybe less. They're all drinking around a fire on the beach. Yeah. And they passing the alcohol around. That was my first taste of alcohol. And I remember this guy passing me the can of lager or wherever it was, and I took a, a drink out of it. Well, I spat it everywhere. So the guy got angry with it, and he tried to force the, the can of lager or beer down my throat. So splattering everywhere, and he took it upon himself. To, where, the, where the can had fell, he put my head into the, the wet sand and pushed it right down. And took a knife out and tried to put it up my bum that time. Uh, and I remember the pain, which I thought it, at the time it was real, like a big hole in me, me, me uh, you know, and I'll see my arse because that's what it was, if you want to put it that way. Uh, a couple of other guys jumped on him and pulled him off, and I ran like I've never ran before. Uh, and I could just feel the blood coming down my legs. I was frightened about my dad seeing it because in my head I thought, they just think I've been in trouble again and that. So I remember going running in, sneaking up the stairs, taking my shorts off and my pants off. I even put them into the bin. But the, the, the cut was only a little nick. Uh, but to me, it was a mass. I thought at the time it was a massive hole. You know, and that, that was around that time. And sadly, I, I still go back down to the beach. And it's realising if you know about traumas and different things and attachment disorders that's quite normal for a child to go down there, go back there. And and this guy, I was on a little roam boat, just myself, and he'd be pushing me out, pulling me in, pushing me out, pulling me in. Offered me sweets, like a stereotypical story, what it'd be. And then he got his, his knob out and started swinging it around. And this, that's that, quite hard. It's, it's, I still see that. I don't see his face. I still see that. Then he asked me to go and show him to the toilet where the toilets were, and I went with him quite simply. Just walked away with him. Went to the toilets. A disgusting these toilets. Uh, I he pulled me in, pulled me into the the, uh, the cubicle place, made put me hand on his on his thing and that. Uh, and when he was pulling too hard, he's the the, the, the floors were so wet with piss he slipped and he went one way and I went the other way so I took off and before the fishermen used to do they used to turn the boats upside down to drain the water out little roam boats so I managed to get underneath there and he came and was trying to lift it and lift the roam boat up while I, while I was stuck underneath the roam boat and it was only because the fishermen came down and must have shouted at him and he took off then they lifted the boat up and there's me underneath and I took off so that kind of they kind of saved me in a roundabout way, really. But I, 
Gary, that is awful. Absolutely disgraceful. But as as a kid, you don't see that. You, of course not. Even even as an adult, and going before I went through therapy, I still thought that was my fault. Uh, ashamed of it and guilt, everything that comes with it. Yeah, I can see. I can. I can see the emotion in you still now to this day. Yeah, absolutely despicable, evil. And I'm sorry you had to go through anything like that. And thank you, thank, and also thank you for sharing, because there will be people listening who this will resonate with, and hopefully it will help them. Are you okay to carry on? Yeah, de- definitely. No, 100%. So with all, all that trauma, all that you've been through, you, you kind of developed a way to protect yourself, didn't you? You became a bit of a, a chameleon, a bit of a person who would change their personality, demeanour to, you know, cope with different situations. Is that right? Definitely. I, I, I'd say the turning point was I'd, I'd have been... 12, 13, I think. I, I can't remember, it's just before. Where I come from, it's primary, middle school, then high school. So you have the three schools. It's not like primary and secondary school. You have the three. So I've been around 12, 13. I came home one day. Uh, my mum says, hey, let's go shopping, which my mum never said. So got in the car, went shopping, got loads of groceries and things. And she says, pick two games. And this is, this is how this still sticks in my head, which was a shock, my mum saying that. So I picked Cluedo and Monopoly. And I remember the two games, that's, and that's a long time ago, and I still remember them. All happy, not understand why my mum got these games for me. Get in the car, started to go home, but instead of turning left, we turned right. So all of a sudden went down, which is a nice, quiet area where we are going to, went down to this house, number 81, I can still see it. Went in, then there's this man coming down the stairs, and that was me moved into another house. I never got told about it or anything. That was basically my new dad. This was my new home. And me asking me, ma'am, is my brother coming? No. So I had these two games, Cluedo and Monopoly, and it stuck in my head. Then ne- I never, ever opened them. What was the point of buying two games? I've got nobody to play with them. And it sounds insignificant, but it was massive for me. Was, was this your mum leaving your dad? Aye, yeah. Literally, just one day turned up. This is where we're going. This yeah. is where we're going to be now. Uh, and that was me, boom, gone. And I remember going, and I can still see myself putting the, 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 my bedroom light off that night. Put it on, came up in the morning, and I was like a different boy. I changed then. That was it. I'd had, I'd had enough. Yeah. And did you? So, um, I need to get my head around this. Was this, I'm taking it that none of this was to to get you away from your dad and having a better situation or better life. This was literally just your mum, like, thinking about her, this is is where I want to be right now. Yeah, so my, obviously, my mum had obviously been having an affair with this guy and and obviously my mum and dad, which I can understand mum and dad, 
you know, I'm defending them here as well. I can understand why they parted. Yeah. Because uh, there's no point being together if there's no love at all and different things like that. So I get that part. But I get that part as an adult now. I didn't get that part as a child, a 12-year-old. Okay. Right. So you say you waking up in that new house, you changed. From, from there onwards, what happened? So, so you're going into your teenage years now. Um, yeah. uh, you became a bit of an alcoholic, right? You, you started drinking lots? That, that was probably further down, probably okay. 15, 16 years old. And I, I, was, I, I was in the Army Cadets at the time, which that was, my, that was where I was going, Army. I just wanted to get away from everything. 16-year-old, get into the military. Uh, Sadly, I got thrown out of my cadets because I started misbehaving. I started stealing. Yeah, I remember robbing a bit, like a, we call it a baker's van, where I'd sell bread and sweeties and things. I went and, well, it was on a camp and I went and robbed that with a friend and we got caught and I got thrown out. Uh, so it was, I was just constantly self-destruct, self-destruct. If you said I was, that was very good at your exams, uh, guys, I'd, I'd destroy it. I'd make sure the next exams, I'd, I'd just ruin it. If you said you were there, you're good at boxing, I would ruin it. You're good at this, I'd ruin it. Anybody said anything good to me, I'd ruin it, ruin it, ruin it, ruin it, ruin it. Destroy it. Said I'm bad. Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and that's because you believed you were bad and you that's wanted to, to rise to what you believed in yourself. Yeah. You don't even think about it, Nigel. It just became who I was. I, don't, I didn't ever sit there and think, I've got to be bad, I've got to be good. It doesn't, it's just... This is how I became. That's, that's it. So your teen years were just going through lots of that. Uh, I'm taking it you had run-ins with the police. I'm taking it there was more self-harm. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, I know I'm going backwards here. It was really significant. This. When, when the police brought me back home that time, my dad wanted to belt me. And, I can, and this is where I, can, I remember my mum stepping in this time, saying, you're not hitting him. And the copper there, PC, actually, he'd been PC Laidlaw, he became a sergeant. He said to my dad, you'll have trouble with that boy. And the mad thing is, 12, maybe four or five years later, he actually arrested me and put me in the back of a police van. He was a sergeant there, and he probably didn't remember me. Yeah. But, but what you he said to him. me, yeah, definitely. I can remember, and I still can Wow. Wow. Um, so your mental health through all of this is destroyed. Yeah, pretty much. massively. At 16, my, my guy lived with my mother. I bought me a motorbike and I decided to end my life. And I remember it was Valentine's Day. I got on my bike and thought, that's it. And I remember driving, riding the bike, the motorbike and thinking you could only get 35 mile an hour out of it with 50cc and I tried to hit the wagon but I had to, uh, it was a Mark II Escort actually, hit the side of that and I remember waking up, I knocked myself unconscious a little bit coming through that and even thinking I can't even do this right. Uh, How old were you then? 16. So at 16 you tried to commit suicide by riding your motorbike into a car? Yeah, and but I, I, I wanted to see, this is how my head was, and I wanted to see who loved me. I wanted to see when I'm dead, who comes to my funeral. That was the only thing I had in my head, to see 
I'll find out when I'm dead who actually loves me. Which is a mad thing to, in some ways to think about, but that's how my head was. I'll see who turns up at my funeral. It's not a mad thing to think at all. When you've had the upbringing uh, that you've had and um, you have no clue if anyone loves you, of course, that's going to be a question you, you want answered. Who, who actually does? Does yeah. anyone? And, 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 and even then, you probably thought myself, hey, even if people do turn up, you probably think, yeah, they only come to us because they've got a day off work or something like that. I, I would actually have another thing just to put it down. Was that the only time you attempted to commit suicide? It's, I, I didn't know what the word suicide was at 16 year old. You're, you're going back 40 year then nearly, you know. I didn't know, I just had enough of life. So I'd put myself in danger. Again, if you look at traumas and attachment disorders or personality disorders, it's all what happens. I'd put my life on the line. If I, if I was having a fight, if me and you were mates, and I'm fighting for you, Nigel, I'll fight to the death. I didn't care for myself. If somebody was going to have a fight with me, you'd just beat me up. I didn't care. I never had to fight for myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah. Ha I had it for the people I cared for, but I didn't have the fight for myself. I didn't, I didn't give a stuff about myself. I've jumped off bridges just to have a laugh and see what happens. I didn't care. I've climbed outside the cars, sat on the roof. I didn't care. Just didn't care. Um, so you went through many years of not caring yeah. about yourself. Um, like you said, you tried to get into the army. Um, you started working on uh, as a doorman, didn't you? I, 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 my first job was in a timber yard. I'd had loads of jobs. I'd been, I got sacked and things and diff different things uh, and lots of relationships. And I destroyed every single one. You know, I have to live with that now and I'll take that to my grave. Because I, I was fortunate to meet nice women and I destroyed the relationships. Again, something good comes along, I destroyed it. I've been married, destroyed that. So everybody came along, I, dest I, I destroyed. Mm. Yeah. But then you met Michelle. Met Michelle, yeah. On, uh, on my birthday, 31st of January 1999, I was, I was working up. Uh, Glasgow for a so-called gangster, doing bodyguarding for him. Uh, had a big fallout with him, as you do. Decided, again, I'm going to end my life, but I thought I'm going to go out in glory this time. So the guy I used to work with in Grimsby, he had a friend who was working over in Kosovo as a mercenary, so I had an idea to go over there and just go out in a blaze of glory, just go, and, you know, it's a bit of a fantasy world, but I wanted to make it real, just get blasted just get shot to death. So went with him, went down to Grimsby. Uh, he was having trouble with some drug dealers in a pub and he asked us to come out and sort the drug dealers with him as backup. Went to the pub. The thing with him was he loved women <laughs> and he saw Michelle and her friend, whereas I just wanted to have the scrap and things like that. And they took off. He copped off with Michelle's friend. So I'm standing with Michelle there and then, uh, and she saved my life. She's, she's my angel. Um, did you know straight away? I knew in this, I didn't know that I was going to be together because my head was on the end of my life. I, Michelle, if Michelle was here, she would tell you, she was kind of frightened of me because I was so wired. 
because I was wanting the, I was wanting the fight. Yeah. But she she says there was something, you know, she's just quite like this. She says this, she could see into my eyes. She say I almost said I had like sad lost eyes. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I've got all this thing around me, vulnerable, everything, which I, which I was, you know, yeah, uh, all that stuff. So, yeah, and she got a bit frightened of me because I was pushing it and pushing it and pushing it because I didn't want to waste any more time because I've got that hurry up script. Let's see if it's going to work. If yeah. it's not, I'm, I'm away to Kosovo. So bless her, I was getting more and more ill. I couldn't drink anymore. Uh, because when I was drinking, my stomach was rotten. I was weeing blood. I just constantly having diarrhea and things. So we sat down. I was telling my story and all about my life and almost trying to put her off. And she says, "If you stop drinking, get help. We'll 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 give it a go." Uh, we did not know how hard this was going to be, both of us. And we've said many times, if I knew, we probably wouldn't have chose to go through it. Uh, Went into counselling, I promised her that. I'd done it for her to start off with. The counselling didn't work for me. It was just so ingrained into me. Counselling wasn't good. So I got referred to a clinical psychologist, which for eight years I was under that clinical psychologist, which it sounds like I'm putting therapy down here. It it destroyed me. I mean, properly destroyed me. I went down to nine stone and weight, couldn't leave the house. Couldn't walk 10 metres if I'd been soaking with sweat, anxiety. Michelle would have to change the bed every night because I was having nightmares or all that stuff because I was dealing with my past. Within a year, we got married, which some people probably thought that was wrong. The psychologist told Michelle what she shouldn't have. said, don't stay with me because he won't make it. Uh, decided to move to Birmingham because that's Michelle's hometown, uh, city. Uh, and I would travel 140 mile twice a week to, well, 140 mile there, 140 mile back, so that's 280 mile twice a week for my therapy. I never missed a session in eight years. Wow. He, he actually moved to East Kilbride of all places, and I would travel up there and do block sessions and speak on the phone, and I'd done that for eight years. Wow. Uh, I wanted to find who I was. That's, that was a big thing. Who am I? And did you? And um, the reason that you kept going and you were so diligent with it is probably because you started to find yourself a little bit and understand things. I I did start to find myself, but also I was still ashamed of myself. I was living a double life in a sense. I was living. I was uh, trying to pretend I'm still a hard man, tough man. I'm not saying that was anybody else saw that. It was my uh, defense mechanism. Really keeps people away and things and. So in some ways I was lying in some ways to the people who cared for me at home. You know, I've got really good friends and, and you know, I love them dearly. They are my family. And yet in Birmingham, I was starting to shape a life where I started to work in care, looking after kids had been through uh, abusive relationships, all that sort of stuff. I worked with the homeless because I'd been homeless. I worked with People have been from secure units. I'd worked from people have been in jail because I'd been in jail. So all that sort of stuff and learning, but trying to still fight my demons because I thought me doing that was weak because I thought people who worked in care were pansies and you know, all this sort of stuff, which is all wrong. But that's how my thinking was back then. It's soft. It's not strong. And yeah. so I was dealing with that and still trying to do it at the same time and have my therapy at the same time. 
So you're traveling up and down the country. You're trying to find yourself. You've had this awful upbringing. You don't really want to be here. Yeah. And then Michelle becomes pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. Best thing we, because we were trying to have a child. Uh, you know, I'd had a child long time ago and messed up totally. You know, never been in him in his life. And again, you've got to take that to your grave with you because I did let him down in a sense, just wasn't there. So I had another chance for Michelle. So, you know, try for baby, you know, it's all, all the nice things, trying to trying for it. We thought Michelle was going to get pregnant and all of a sudden she fell pregnant. Yeah, I remember coming home from work and she had a little gold box, the pregnancy test in, positive. So off you go to where every happy parent wants to do, you go off and see your child for the first time, the 12 week scan, found out we were having twins. Uh, basically happy as Larry but Michelle had a gut instinct then it's not right then we found out they weren't we thought they had Down syndrome this is what we're told so we referred to Birmingham Women's Hospital the fetal ward then we found out they had uh, it's called twin to twin syndrome so we found out then and bless Michelle she fought tooth and nail. I've never met anybody brave and my wife, to be honest. Dealing with me and my mental health. Dealing with our own mental health as well, because she had to deal with that part of it because of me. And dealing with a pregnancy that uh, wasn't good pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, it, and, and this is a whole story in itself, isn't it? Because yeah. you fought for most of the pregnancy... Uh, you were going to the hospital like twice a week. Yeah, sometimes three times. My wife would be getting these big needles put into her for dra- taking fluid off out of her womb to keep her keep our uh, little girls alive. The pain she went through, and she never mourned once, not ever. She just wanted our little girls to survive. You know, she fought tooth and nail f- uh, for them. Yeah, and. It got to 29 weeks, right? And then... 28, yeah. 28 weeks. Yeah. What happened then? We went in for our 28-week scan. We knew then by when we saw the scan, they had to be born then. That that was it. Sadly, there was no beds in Birmingham. You can't believe that, but beds for twins. There was beds for a single child, but not for twins. Any, Any of the hospitals... The closest place was a place called Shrewsbury, which is 50, 60 miles away. So that was the closest place. So we had to get blue lighted to Shrewsbury Hospital. Uh, so Michelle could get a, an emergency cesarean. So, so then uh, your twins were born. Yeah, twin, twins were born. You actually thought of the name, didn't you, on the way when you were getting... Yeah, um... when we were in the ambulance, yeah, we were coming up with names and... Yeah, obviously we came up with Alana and uh, Donna. Yeah. So that, that were the names. So Alana and Donna were born. Yeah. Um, but sadly, they didn't make it through, did they? No. Uh, the, the next again day, Alana got really poorly, so she had to be rushed to Birmingham. I had to go. I Well, I didn't have to go. I wanted to go. I went with with Alana in the car to try and get there before them, before the ambulance. 
So I took off. I remember my, uh, my father-in-law getting a speeding ticket, actually, but I got to the hospital before the ambulance got there because I wanted to be there for the Lana to come out the ambulance. Got there, stayed with her for three days, and sadly she got poorly and poorly, and the, the consultant or whoever you want to call him said she's not going to make it. So I had to make that call to Michelle, 60 miles away at Shrewsbury, which will haunt me till the day I die, that telling her that, uh, Alana's not gonna make it, and just to hear her the other side, it just it was the most ho horrible thing any parent needs to say to any parent. She wasn't allowed to leave Shrewsbury because she just had a, a emergency cesarean, but she'd phoned her dad up and bless him, a lovely man he 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 was. He went and picked her up, got her, picked her up from Shrewsbury, brought her to to uh, the children's hospital in Birmingham. I can remember I could hear her crying before I even saw her getting wheeled in the wheelchair and she but she managed to get to hold Alana before she passed away uh, three days old so important that she got there for that I'm... oh 100 percent uh, yeah so amazing lady <laughs> yeah very amazing lady um but you still had at that point still had one twin yeah, Dana was alive. She was still poorly, but she was stable. Uh, so we had to leave Alana in the morgue, which is uh, as much as they make it nice as it is. It's just heartbreaking to leave your child there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But we had to get back for Dana. Got back for Dana. Uh, but then we had to obviously have a funeral in between that and things and... You know, Michelle stayed there. I I travel back every day, sometimes twice a day, just to to see them both. They managed to find a, a bed. I think it was Wolverhampton. I can't remember now, to be honest. But closer to Birmingham, and Dana was doing well, so they decided to move Dana to Wolverhampton. So got it all organised. Then she started to get poorly as they put her into the incubator. She needed a blood transfusion. Within twenty four hours, she. She died as well, sadly. Uh, and I honestly, honestly think, and I and I, I thought about uh, uh, this afterwards. I honestly think because I remember getting a car coming home with Michelle. It's just, just horrible. I think if she wasn't there, I, I wouldn't be here now because I'd have just smashed my car into. I had them thoughts in my head. I just that's it because I blamed myself because of the life I'd had and the, the people I've hurt. It was karma. I deserve this. I couldn't understand why Michelle deserved it because she's so nice. She doesn't park on double yellow lines even. She's just that type of lady. Yeah. So, Whereas you, you were blaming yourself. Yeah, definitely. 100%. And that's a, a, a common um, thing for people who lose children, isn't it? it uh, I can only speak for myself that, yeah, I've, 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 I've heard that. I, I mean, I... Because of my background, and my granddad was a great religious man. He always says, "If you do bad, son, karma." He didn't use the karma word, but it'll come back to to haunt you. And I've stuck that in my head, and I'm thinking, "This is all coming back now, you know, to haunt to haunt me." And this is just again, I was in my therapy at the time as well, so I was still trying to work on myself and going through this as well. Yeah. Now you've written a book. I just want to mention that to folks who might be listening. Um, uh, that delves more in depth into this whole period here uh, about your 
um, child loss. What's the name of the book? It's uh, Daddy and the Two Bears. Uh, and why is it called Daddy and the Two Bears? Because when, when, when Michelle was pregnant, we ca- called them, uh, we used to say they were little bears. And it was more when, because I, didn't, I hadn't grieved for 14 years, in a sense, when Michelle got the cancer, it all hit home to me then. And I realised, it's, it's a bit more of a long story, this really, so it's, it's probably not the right time. Just before time. We, we, we get there, so the book was inspired how? Because of, it was inspired by, Michelle got cancer, bless her. Uh, every birthday, every birthday of our daughters, she would go around all her family early in the morning and deliver birthday cakes. She'd done this every birthday for, the, for our bears. I never done it. And that might sound really selfish, and I it is selfish, but I refuse to do it. I refuse to talk about my children. I, I couldn't. Uh, I just wanted that day to disappear. But I had to this day, because Michelle couldn't drive because of her cancer, I had to go and deliver the birthday cakes myself. And, I, I and this not, is quite a few years after... after yeah, four, 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for 14 years, you... you Basically, didn't deal with. Yeah, that, that's, wouldn't talk about it. Wouldn't speak to Michelle about it. I I couldn't talk about it. I just couldn't bring myself to talk about it. I I, I couldn't even deal with Michelle's. I couldn't deal with my own hurt, and seeing Michelle so hurt, I couldn't deal with her pain either. And it does sound I'm really selfish, man. I just couldn't deal no, with it. No, no, it doesn't sound selfish at all. Uh, it sounds like you're dealing with grief. It sounds like you're. You know, well, you're not dealing with grief, but yeah. it's taking its toll on you. Yeah. Well, my, my, my way of dealing with things, and I've done this since a child, I disassociate myself from it. And I've learned that through traumas, really. It becomes natural. I just boom, I just crack on. I crack on. It's in there. Yeah. The, pa- the pain's in there. <laughs> there are many people who, who take that route. Um, but as you're going to tell us now, it's not the route to take at, because... At some point, and for you, it was fourteen years later when yeah. you then realised that your wife had cancer. Yeah. That it all came full circle, and you can't you can't avoid it for forever, can you? No, and like I say, I came home that that day. Said to Michelle, "I've I've done it," and I came through. And Michelle's got two memory boxes: one for Lana and one for Dana. I had never looked into these memory boxes. So this is this was spurred from you going and doing the cake deliveries that your wife had done every year. Yeah, yeah. You've then done those, and finally, you're you're looking into these little memory boxes. Yeah, it's got all the cards from the nice people who just I, I've never read anything, but there was hundreds of cards. All the little clothes I had, I looked at all, read the cards, and it just absolutely. Destroyed us. But in a good way, if you want to. Uh, and I just thought, how, how many more men are going through the same thing? And I thought I was going to write, but it was more for Michelle. I'm going to write my feelings down for Michelle. And when I was talking to her, about it, we were sitting at the kitchen table and we both came up, let's write a book. Call it Daddy and the Two Bears. So that's, that's how it comes from. Uh, 
And it was more for people to make open a conversation, not just for dads, but for women as well, because lots of couples split up because of we could have split up. And, and, and is it to do with communication? I can honestly probably say it probably is for a lot of people. You know, people turn to alcohol, you know, all these different things and lose themselves in their grief. But it was, it, was not, it was getting women to understand this is what a man's going through as well. He's not not ignoring you. He's not saying that's fine. It's that you know, let's move on. They're hurting themselves. We, you know, we grieve. It's still grief. Men and women are still grieving the same, just short in different ways. Yeah. Uh, so it was more for them getting professionals to understand that men need. I was going to swear they need help as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's tailored for women, and that, you know what, rightly so. But there needs to be somewhere now. My generation's a different generation, but there needs to be something now. Whereas if this happens, because it's going to happen, sadly, whereas there's something there offered. At the same time, it's offered for that woman. It needs to be offered for that man. If it was offered to me, I'd have said no, and I know I would have said no. I'm fine. I'll crack on, and I would have. Now I'm a different person. I'd probably say yes and, and take an advice to take it and things like that. Yeah. But it needs to be offered and needs to keep being offered till, because it wasn't always there for women, it's there for now. So it needs to be offered for men. So it might, like I say, it might not be my generation, but it might be the next generation and the next generation where it just comes bloody normalised. Yeah. You know, we can sit in pubs and talk about football and all, especially just now. We're still there not talking about mental health. I don't care what anybody says, yeah, it's getting better, but we're still not enough. So I'm gonna yeah. do my gonna do my but as much as I can because I, I I'm passionate about that. I know you are. And, yeah. And I love your passion about it and yeah. and where you've got to. We are so happy to have Tonka as our sponsor this series. Basic Fun's Tonka collection is packed full of fun vehicles for kids who want to get out and get tough with their toys. So dads, you've got no excuse. Grab that Mighty Steel Classic truck. It's time to head to the sandpit for some tough play. If people want to um, hear more about this, because we could talk about this for a very long time and the podcast is only a certain amount of uh, time, they can go and check out um, the dad chat that we had because we had a, a, a chat specifically about your baby loss. Yeah. Uh, and it's one that people can go and listen to. But I want to move on now because after the the death of your twins, yeah. you you went on to have two more children. Yeah, I, 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 the way I dealt with my grief and I look back was, obviously I lost my girls, but I, I started to look at it in a sense, it changed, it might, it might sound really strange. I could have went back to my old ways, which I was tempted to. I thought... I talk to my daughters every day and say, what, what, what can your daddy do? And I do, I do this, what can your daddy do for you? And for me, the only way I can be is be myself and be a good person now and do good things. So that's my journey, to do good things. I'm not being a wishy-washy sort of man. I'm not like that, but I am going to do good for people. So I decided to got in touch with the hospital. Every year I'd done something for the hospital, tough guy events, walking across the country, all these things and raised over 30 grand for them. That's not for my ego. That's for them. You know, I, I, I didn't want anything publicised before. That's no, I don't want anything, don't want anything, don't want anything, don't want anything. But I have to now, if I want to go further on, I have to get people to 
put it out there about things. It's not about me. It's about daddy and the two bears. It's about this. And that's my life, helping people. And that's and that's what I'm going to do. It's not an egotistic thing. It's me. It's just me. If I can help you, Nigel, I'm going to help you, mate. That That's my journey. And I do that for them up there every, every day of my life. You are helping people. And just being here on this podcast, hopefully it's going to help people as well. Yeah. Definitely. So how did you approach fatherhood with your children after the loss? Not very well, to be honest, Nigel. I, I really struggled with my daughter when she came along. Because you're worried, because I've still gone through my therapy, I'm yeah. worried it's going to happen again uh, when Erin came along. You know, and she would tell her, tell you now, bless her, you know, and I, I, I'm gutted about this, but I, I've overprotected her. Because uh, Erin's 16 now. 16, I beautiful uh, girl. She's just been accepted into college today, so I'm so made up for her. Oh, today? Today, I, yeah. Oh, congratulations, uh, mate. And she's a little battler. She's had heart operations and everything, severely dyslexic, and, she keep, and she's gone. She's a little fighter, and she's getting there, uh, which I'm so proud of her. But she, we, we are quite an open family. And she has said to me, eh, I'm, I've overprotected her. And I, and, I, and I have. And that's not necessarily been a good thing for her, to be honest. Eh, and I realise that now. I get, I get why I've done it. But it's not helped her. Eh, and, I, 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 and I know that. You know? Because even when she was born, I, I was scared to go into the room. I, I, if I did go in the room, I'd wake her up to see if she was still alive. And if she is getting older, she went to the shops. I'd follow her up, the, up to the shops. She didn't know this. <laughs> just, just trying to protect her from all the horrible people out there. Yeah. You know, because that's my background. Yeah, exactly. Well, when you've seen the life, and that's why we've talked so specifically about what you've been through and the trauma you've been through, because you can't... Uh, look at the way you parent now or talk about what you've been through without understanding all the different sides and aspects uh, of things that you've experienced. Definitely. Uh, 100%. I, I, I know I'm not the best dad in the world and I'll never kid anybody that, but I know I go out and do my best. That's what I do. If I do wrong, I apologise to my children and I explain, this is what daddy comes from, this is... And you listen to them as well, you know. And, you know, my son will say, Dad, you got that wrong, so we'll sit and have a chat. And it's allowing them not to be scared of mum and dad and things like that, like I was scared of mine. It allows them... But I'm not a perfect dad, Nigel, I get it wrong. If anybody's saying that, they we get all it do. right. Of course we do. We you all get it wrong, we all yeah. get it wrong. Um... You didn't have a dad role model. You had a dad. But the, oh. the, the role model of a father figure and what a father figure should be, you didn't have that. Oh, my, my, and, and sadly, again, I still have that role model inside me, if that makes sense, because it's, I've learnt of my dad. I, I don't, but my dad would hit me. So naturally, in your head, you think punishment but I don't do it so I, I can ch I've changed them behavioral patterns yeah this is what I wanted to ask you how yeah. how have you changed those patterns because you don't do that what what are you using as your role model how do you 
how do you how do you daddy i do it because i've watched uh my friends bringing children up i and looking at it in a positive way i've done it how michelle's got a, such a lovely beautiful family i've watched them with their children so i i, I watch I, i'm a very good i i know i'm chatting away here i'm a very good listener and i watch everything that goes on you know and i think that's why i was a good bodyguard i I'm always observing all the time. Yeah. So I've learned it's not natural for me, if that makes sense, but I I've had to learn it as an as an adult to learn to be a dad. Not not growing up uh developing it as you're meant to do through nurture. Because the way I was nurtured was wrong. Yeah. Uh, so what you've said there is it's been important to have the right people around you, to have a community around you, to have a have your wife's family around you and see and hear from other parents um, yeah. how it should be done. So is, is that an important thing? Because basically what I'm saying is, well, that's what we do here at Dad Ventures. We have a, a community of, of, yeah. of parents that talk to each other about things. We, we have these podcast episodes where we talk about things that have happened in, parent, in people's parenting lives. You think that how important is it to you? I think it's really really important, and it's it's nice to hear that people are doing that. I think in in today's society, we're always w- watching if we're doing what's wrong in front of people and worried if we're doing the, the wrong thing. I think as parents, we put too much pressure on children to be perfect. Now, I think again, I think we put too much pressure on children that children don't build a resilience up anymore. You know. I'm not saying I was right how I was brought up because it wasn't. It's getting that balance. Children need to learn to fail and it's okay to fail and learn from it. Does that make sense, Nigel? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We are as a generation, I think, uh, and I work in certain schools and I work in the, the really nice part of Birmingham where the schools, where some of the children just get everything they ask for and... They're quite well protected. And I work in the inner city school, whereas the kids have got so much resilience, so much almost, in some ways, overconfident, which could get themselves into trouble. They've got that swagger about them and things, and just because the area, this is the way they have to believe to be. And this, so it's, it's a, getting that balance, really. Uh, yeah. Did you, did you ever find it... Um difficult to bond with your children and want to be a father yeah definitely no, because definitely. you know yeah I, I just I, wondered you I mean you're doing it now but did you struggle at first yeah I was frightened and I was frightened I would actually I'd make all the sub- excuses I'd stay late at work and I actually almost kidded myself I was almost become my dad in some ways if I look at it that way Whereas I'd be doing my work and that I'd be the last one out. I'd be the first one there because I was frightened. I didn't, I was scared of being my, becoming my dad. So I'm trying to avoid, come home out in bed. Ah, you know, away before I, I get up. I escaped it. I dodged a bullet there tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was scared. I was frightened. I'm, I'm my dad. And that's, oh. that's, that's not nice. No, not at all. Um, so how did you get past that? Where, I mean, I can see the emotion in that. If you're scared 
to be around your children because you, you think that you might react in the way that your parents did. But that shows already that you didn't want to react like that. You didn't want to be that person. So how did you get over it and how did you get past it? Re- really working hard on myself. Taking myself, when, when I had them thoughts, because the thoughts came, I'm going to be honest here, the thoughts came, but to be able to counteract that and probably therapy helped that as well. Knowing their only thoughts, they're not real. The thoughts that my dad put into me, I've learned off my mum and my dad and you could say bullies and anybody who was above me who I put above me, the negative people in life, and just try to counterbalance that with positive thoughts. You know, if you look at OCD, and I'm not going to go into counselling in a sense, but people do get them thoughts. They want to hurt somebody and it's, it's a thought. It's about not listening to them thoughts. Listen to the positive thoughts, not listen to the negative thoughts. Yeah, definitely. If there are dads out there listening who are struggling, maybe, you know, maybe their backgrounds haven't been uh, particularly bad. Their, their upbringing has not been particularly bad, but they're still having these thoughts of like, I can't bond with my child. I don't know what I'm doing. What, what sort of advice would you have for, for someone like that? For, for me, it's all about communication. I've really learned that. It's about being able to sit there, and I'm using Michelle as an example, like, Saying I feel I'm and I did I feel I'm failing failing as a father. I'm not looking for sympathy. I just needed to know because I didn't know how to be a dad. All I felt, like I said earlier, I'm getting it wrong. So it's it's asking for help. It's, and that, and that's the big thing. It's about asking for help. And I do still think, and I work with lots of kids in schools with the programs I do. Even kiddies now, they still struggle to ask for help. So that's came off parents, 100%. Or they've put their hand up in class and other kids have laughed at them so they don't put their hands up anymore. It's all, you know, So it's, for me, it's asking for help. The big thing is you need somebody the other side of there to listen. Because if you don't listen to me, Nigel, I ain't speaking to you again. So that person you're communicating with, you need to friggin' listen. Because when I'm speaking, I'm desperate. I need help now. Please listen. So for me, you speak and you keep speaking till somebody listens. So it's really important that when dads get to the point where they can finally reach out, when they've got over themselves sometimes to be able to get past it and and be a little bit vulnerable and, and reach out and talk to people, it's important that we have people there to listen, right? Definitely because as a man, and I do still think a lot of men like this, we, we, are, we are conditioned to be strong. We are conditioned to be the breadwinners and things like that. My wife was earning, when I was mentally unwell, my, my wife, I was so ashamed. My wife's still working as a teacher, still doing all the things, looking after me, looking after the house, paying the bills. That was the shame more than anything else, you know, if that makes sense. But I'm, I'm not going to tangent here, so I'm trying to pull myself back. It's, it's, it's all about talking. It's all about get rid of that stereotypical tough man because it's a load of shite. Get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you have come full circle in, in a way because now you are helping other people. You, you've studied, you've, you've become uh, a counsellor, right? Yeah, I, 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 I went back into body garden because uh, I wanted to do it the right way this time. So I went, I went off to Uganda, Afghanistan, Libya, and, and, and done all that stuff. And I, I got my dream, that little boy who was a child, 
got his dream. It sounds strange because I wanted to go to war as a little boy, which sounds mad probably to some people, but I, I got there, came back, uh, I decided I'm going to go back into college because I've done two years of studying counselling to finish my counselling off. So I did that, qualified, uh, worked for a, a company who worked in care, worked with all these difficult kids, which they're not really difficult. It's because they're damaged kids as well. They weren't, they weren't born that way. It's, again, it's adults and things. It's damaged them in a sense that way. But I became that counsellor, but I'm not your stereotypical counsellor. I get people out walking. I, 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 I've had clients in Witherspoons, Costa. You know, I've had people on push bikes. I teach self-defence. I've had them on the pads. I counsel that way. Almost making it a chat, but I'm working with you all the time. So I'm not your stereotypical counsellor. Then I decided to set my own business up, doing the counselling, doing the talking. I go on site now and looking on building sites and talking about mental health. I developed the Safeguarding Me programmes for schools. Where I go, because this is where you need to start at the ground roots is, and I do all these little stories about knife crime, gangs, anger, self-esteem, anything what children need to learn through a character called Little Billy. So that's what I do now and I'm going into the schools and get the kids to understand about their emotions and all that sort of stuff and the stuff they have in front of them, what they're going to come into life. So it's building their resilience up, teaching them, you know. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing, amazing that you're giving back, amazing that you're doing that. Um, you're an amazing person, Gary, an absolutely amazing person. Thank you. Um, and thank you for being here. There's a question that we ask all of our dad vengers. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to ask it to you now. If you could have a dad superpower, what would it be and why? To make every child happy. It's, I, I understand exactly where you're coming from. I can see the emotion. Because it all starts there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes, it does. Gary, you're a wonderful, wonderful man. If you could say anything to anyone out there right now who's uh, a father, who's just been listening to this, what would it be? The thing that just came to my head is, and I, I do use this a lot, uh, never give up till your time's up. And I'm begging that I will keep going, keep going, keep going. You will make mistakes, but then you learn from their mistakes. You know? Yeah. And that's that's it for me. I, I I I do say that quite a lot. Never give up till your time's up. I love it. I really um, do love mm -hmm. it. Thank yeah. you so much, Gary. Gary, we'll be talking again after this anyway. You know, we're yeah. mates for life now. You yeah. And I. Well, I appreciate but, that. Thank you so much for sharing. I think what you've done here um, today has been very important and it's going to help a lot of people. Um, we'll be backing you, you know, throughout your endeavours. Um, good luck with the book. Um, yeah, thank you and keep doing what you're doing, okay? Thanks, thanks, Nigel. All the best, mate. Thank you. Take care. Take care. What an incredible story. Something that no one ever should go through. A life 
that could have gone a different way. But he's come full circle. He is a good dad. He's an amazing dad to have got through what he's got through and be here and be able to share it with us. So what a privilege to see his story. Thank you so much, Gary. So there you have it, another fantastic episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have time, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode or of the series as a whole. And don't forget, you can subscribe or follow using your preferred podcast platform to be first to hear the episodes. If you'd like to find out more about Dadvengers, head to dadvengers.com where you can find out more information about our live chats, about our meetups, quizzes, blog posts, and more. This has been the Dadvengers podcast, sponsored by Tonka, because being tough is all about getting out and playing. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.